We're so glad you're tuning into this week's Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jason Hitchings, the Men's and Sports Director. This week, we're moving on to chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark, pressing further into our Masterclass series. Today's message focuses on considering what it means to invest in God's kingdom. How does Jesus see our contributions of time and money into his kingdom? And what can he do with what we give over to him? Over the next half an hour, we'll explore Jesus' teachings on these things and more, and consider how to put them into practice. Thanks for tuning in. I'm really glad that you're here today. I always feel better about you guys than I do the first service. Don't tell them I said that. Um, Because by the time you get here, I've already had like two extra cups of coffee and I'm working on the third. So y'all are in good shape today. We're going to be leaning into uh, continuing through the book of Mark, which we've been in all summer. And it's called a master class, which is a little intimidating on the outset because I don't feel like I'm in any sort of position to come and teach anything that's called a master class. But we're literally going through the entire book of Mark chapter by chapter. And so today on chapter 12, you know that we've been at this for 12 weeks. And if you've been following along, you know that when we last left Jesus in chapter 11, his authority was once again being questioned. People wanted to know, like, by what authority do you do and say the things that you're doing and saying? And Jesus, of course, followed that up with a question. He said, well, you tell me this, and they didn't answer his question. And so he's like, well, since you didn't answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours either. So there. So we've got this whole picture of what it means, masterclass, to be an authority on something. And I just want to say on the outset, and it'll be something that we covered throughout the rest of this morning, that our authority in this place doesn't come from a position that I hold or an education that I have, but literally on what the Word of God says. Like, that's where our authority lies. Not in what we believe, not in what we think, not in what we, but literally where it comes from. And so we lean into this Word knowing that it is the thing we want to live our lives according to. And it's a willing submission that we bring today. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, and that you're willing to turn with me over to Mark chapter 12, we'll begin this morning with Jesus teaching. It says in Mark 12, starting in verse 1, that Jesus began to speak to them in parables. And that idea of parables is a really important one because Jesus is speaking to them in these stories, these illustrations. It's literally, like the word literally means to put two things out in front. And the things that we're putting out in front are a comparison, it's a contrast, it's a, it's a picture of what things are and what they should be. It's literally what we understand to be a narrative and it's fictional. And it's not fictional in the same way that like Marvel is fictional because that's, you know, all like fantasy and sci-fi and made up and cool and I love it. But we're diving into the fictional things that are real, that people can relate to, that people can understand sort of in an allegorical kind of way. He's literally putting something out there that means something else. And it's always something that people would have understood. 
So like, we're gonna give you an illustration about farming because people understood farming. We're gonna give you an illustration about a lady who lost some money because y'all, we understand what it means to be a lady who lost some money. We're gonna give you an illustration about a dude that had some sheep because this audience understood what it meant to be a guy with some sheep. And it's always an example by which some doctrine or some truth or some instructions or some identifying characteristic of what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus tells these stories, because they mean something. So Jesus began to speak to them in parables, and he says, a man planted a vineyard. It's literally the equivalent of like, hey, two guys walk into a bar. Like, we understand what that means. Like, here's a story that's coming to us. He says he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. That's something that people would, listen, if you're going to build a vineyard, you've got to build a watchtower. If you're going to build a watchtower, you've got to build a wall. If you're going to build a wall, you've got to dig a pit. Like it's literally the instructions that people would have related to. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved on to another place. Okay, I'm tracking. This guy isn't just a farmer. He's not just a vineyard planter. He's also a business owner. He's franchising this thing. He's going to go to another part of town and dig up another vineyard and put some tenant farmers in charge of that. And then he's going to go to another part of town and make a vineyard and put some, it's, it's literally Chick-fil-A. There's going to be one vineyard on every corner. And we're excited about that. And so he's literally building these farms and he put some tenants to actually farm the land. And it says in verse two, at harvest time, we're going to get the wine back. He sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Like instead of paying the dues, instead of giving the landowner what he deserved, they're literally beating the servant and putting him away so that they can keep the produce for themselves. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. So he sent servant after servant after servant, leader after leader after leader, and they literally reject every single one he had in verse six, one left to sin, a son whom he loved. Now, I hate to be the son that he didn't love in this moment, but the son that he loved, he sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. No, I don't think they actually understood how inheritance worked, but still, we're going to go with it. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then Jesus says, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? He's literally like, like check in your homework. Did y'all finish your homework assignment last night? Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? And then he quotes Psalm chapter 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And we understand that, that Jesus, because of his father Joseph, his, his lot in life and his chosen career, the thing that he apprenticed for was the idea of being a carpenter. And, and we can't think of carpenter as just like DIY, I built things with wood because I found a plan online. Like we're looking at carpentry as actually being a stonemason. And so then the illustration becomes to make even more sense. He's quoting Psalm chapter 118 and says, hey, the stone that the builders rejected has actually become the cornerstone. And then he says, the Lord has done this Psalm 118, and it is marvelous to our eyes. This cornerstone is the first one that's laid. If you're going to build a house, you got to make sure that you get the cornerstone exactly right because the cornerstone going in this direction, it is the rule by which every other stone moving down this north end of the wall will be laid. And then not only that, but you got to go this direction. We've got to make sure that every single stone based on the cornerstone is perfectly plumbed to the direction that this wall so that you get a perfectly perpendicular house and that the right angle is 
pristine. It's literally a building project because if you get the cornerstone wrong and every other stone that you lay is not in perfect alignment with the cornerstone, then all of a sudden you're off a degree that makes the whole house not measure and the thing can literally fall down. If you want to understand the illustration, God is the vineyard owner. And the servants that he sent, the the prophets and the kings and the leaders all throughout the Old Testament, constantly rejected by the people. And so what does he do? The New Testament comes and he sends his son. And and thinking, surely they're going to respect him. No, what do they do? They kill him too. But ultimately, it was his marvelous plan all along. So the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the ones, the elders who were literally sitting and hearing this story, the ones who had literally just questioned his authority back in chapter 11, they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. You're so vain. You probably think the story's about you. Like it really was about them, like 100%. But the reason they didn't do it is because they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. This entire book is marked by all of the moments that the teachers and the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders want to trap Jesus, execute Jesus, get rid of Jesus. But the reason they don't is because the crowds are all about Jesus. If you want to understand It's in your notes this morning. If you're somebody who likes to to write things down and follow along, keeps you awake, keeps you focused, helps you remember what we talked about today, understanding Jesus' teaching does mean grappling with his authority. And and that was always the case. Like as soon as Jesus came on the scene, what does it say about them? In Mark chapter 1 and in all of the other gospels, the crowds respond to Jesus and it says that they are amazed by him because he taught as one with authority not like the scribes and the other religious leaders. And if you're somebody who's in need, if you're somebody who is desperate, if you're somebody who needs somebody to help you figure things out, you love the authoritative figure in your life who can come and provide. We tell all of our friends who are parents literally living life and trying to figure things out as they go the way that we are, that our children do not need a best friend. They need a mom or a dad. They need somebody who's in authority. And even if they reject or rebel against that authority, they need that authority in life to thrive. The crowds recognize we need somebody who's going to come and teach us with authority and lead us with authority. Somebody that we can follow if you are somebody who's trying to maintain your own control. You don't like that Jesus taught as one with authority. If you're somebody who's trying to control the system, like the priest and the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, then this authority of Jesus and the popularity that he had with people is a really bad thing. They didn't like being portrayed as the super mean tenant farmers that continued to kill the servants and eventually the son. And truth be told, I don't like that either. All of the nuggets that are in Mark chapter 12 for us are, are marks. There's their stories about authority. And if we're honest, That's our least favorite thing about Jesus too, right? Like I love the healing. I love, man, those miracles and the teaching. Like those are all really, really good. And the love that he talked about, oh, that's awesome. I even love when he comes and upends somebody else's power. You know those stories where you're like rooting for Jesus because he's upending the power of other people. I like when Jesus takes care of somebody else's authority, but I don't like when he comes and questions mine. I I like the idea that Jesus heals and he talks about love and he takes up, but Sometimes his teaching even motivates us. I just don't like when it restricts us. So much of the Bible, and and certainly a lot of Mark, is about authority. Just like the authority that we don't like in our lives, and 
insert whatever person that you didn't elect or that you didn't vote for, that you don't particularly like, that you're trying to trap into something so that later on you can just tell all your friends, I told you so. That's the moment that Jesus is facing with these crowds and these particular religious leaders. It picks up in verse 13, and it says, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, the people that are conspiring together. They don't even like each other, but they're conspiring together to find a way to trap and to kill Jesus. They sent him to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. Note to self, like it's always a good idea when you're going to criticize someone to start with a compliment. Like when you've got like some sort of evaluation that you have to make, like here they are. They're just saying, hey, Jesus, we know that you're somebody with integrity. Hold on, let me get to it, hold on. Because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Like we're, like we're, we're building Jesus up in the moment. And then they say this, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, I just want all of you to hear me say this morning, and just in case this is being listened to or recorded in any stretch of the way, you should all pay your taxes. Like, no one should, like, you should. You should pay your taxes. And that is, in fact, the answer that Jesus gives. Jesus, however, the Bible says, he knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? You can butter me up all you want to, but I know your heart. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. All about the image and all about the inscription. And lest we think that this is a passage of scripture that's about paying taxes, it's really a passage about authority and a passage about submission because whose image is on you according to Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 that you and I were created in the image of God in his image and in his likeness he created all of us male and female it's God's image that's supposed to be represented in our lives and scripture is clear all across it starting in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and then going throughout the rest of it we're to fix these words we're to fix these words of his on our hearts and on our minds write them as an inscription on our doorposts of our home and bind them on our foreheads and on our wrists like these are the words that are literally supposed to be on us. So it's God's image and this word's inscription that is supposed to be on our lives. And so who do we belong to? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to the Lord what is the Lord's. And we're supposed to belong to him, which means all of us is supposed to be given to him. The way that they were trying to trap Jesus to say that people could defy Rome is literally so important because Jesus did not give these people an opportunity to disobey their earthly authority in matters of civil duty just so they could submit to their heavenly authority. I know there's a lot of quoted passages of scripture that have to do with governance from time to time. Like Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, let everybody be subject to the governing authorities. And he explains because every single governing authority, whether you like it or not, is something that God established and has been put in place by him. I think sometimes 
We as believers in Jesus Christ who who are attempting to live our life committed to this word, we get tripped up over the idea that we should somehow aggressively contradict certain things about our systems and about our leaders. Like, okay, we've got person A over here and maybe they're a candidate that's running for office and person A doesn't celebrate all of my values or believe all of my truths. And so I've got to, in hostility, reject every single thing about person A and the system that they represent. Because of my allegiance to Jesus, I've got to, in hostility, let everybody know what's wrong with this. Scripture pretty clearly teaches that we can actually maintain our allegiance to Christ, maintain our love for God and our consistency with this word, while submitting to governing authorities, even those that we don't affirm, and we can do it with Christ-like civility simply because the way we represent Jesus matters. And the way that we speak that truth into the world matters. It has to be consistent with his character. Accepting Jesus is literally an equation of trust. Like, it it literally means that we trust him, and trust always equals submission. Trust always equals submission. Vance Havner is a prominent preacher, lived a really long time, started preaching at 12 years old, and preached all across the country. Billy Graham called him the most quoted preacher in America, like literally the most, it's like Coming back and saying that Charlton Heston is the greatest actor of all time, like you might believe that, but then you get somebody like Denzel Washington or Tom Hanks, and that, that may contradict that to a degree. So somehow or another, in his day and age, they believed that Vance Havner was the greatest preacher of all time, and so much so that Billy Graham actually officiated his funeral. I don't know what you have to do in life to get Billy Graham to do your funeral. That's like a crazy moment. He said this, what we live is what we believe. Everything else is just so much religious talk. Like, there's a picture of what you live in life being reflective of what you believe in life. And the way that you live out your life is a reflection of what you actually believe to be true. We continue to quote Augustine in these moments because it matters so much if you believe only the things that you like about the gospel and reject the things, because there's some hard parts of this that you don't like. It's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. It's whether or not you're willing to submit to the whole will and counsel, the whole authority of God. So the Pharisees and the Herodians have had their moment to come and attack and trap Jesus, and now if you get to verse 18, it's the Sadducees. And basically, these guys don't believe in bodily resurrection. They don't believe that when a person died, they're going to come back to life and spend all eternity at the right hand of God, and that's what Old Testament teaches in so many ways. And so it's like, these guys don't even believe what the Scripture says, and so they come to Jesus with an attempt to trap, and they say, okay, so Jesus, say there's a man and a woman, you know, they fall in love, they get married, but then they don't have any children, and then the guy dies, and the woman is a widow. Well, according to their Levitical law, one of his brothers was supposed to come and take care of her, and so one of the brothers would step up and marry the widow, and so they paint this picture of a story. So Jesus, what if, what if there's a man, and he gets married, and he doesn't have kids, and then he dies, and so his wife is a widow, and then his little brother comes, and he marries her because he's doing his duty. Well, then he dies, and she's a widow again, and so then the third brother has to come in and marry the widow, and now she's been married to three brothers. They still don't have children, and then that brother dies, and now I would be terrified to be the fourth brother like so nervous. And if I was the fifth brother, I would be launching an all-out Federal Bureau of Investigation trying to figure out what is wrong with this woman and why do all these brothers keep dying? But they continue the story. Finally, she marries seven 
brothers and none of them have children that are gonna come and help take care of now their elderly, clearly mother in life. So what in the world is this widow gonna do? And the question that they ask Jesus, not even believing that there is a resurrection from the dead, they say, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? But Jesus knows their hearts. And, and so he responds in verse 24, says, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? And then he says in verse 27, you are badly mistaken. Like errors, mistakes. Here's the deal about following Jesus. You cannot rightly follow Jesus. You can't rightly consistently get your life in line with Jesus if you don't really know. If you don't really know him. So I'm literally looking at this passage of Scripture, and I'm putting these two verses together, and the word error seems to stand out to me. And so I grab my notes and look at my Bible, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to check out the word error. A lot of us are trying to figure out and trying to make a, a case for the fact that this biblical word, the one that gives us the authority of God in life, is inerrant or it's infallible. And literally to be inerrant, for Scripture to be inerrant means that it's without error in its original language and its original context. And for scripture to be inerrant, that means that it's also infallible. Like it's literally incapable of giving us any sort of error, especially if you go back to the original languages, which is kind of fun to do in some ways because it's Greek and it looks way prettier than English because that's the word planao. And what it literally means is to stray, to wander. And when you read these words in the original language, it's not just, are you not in planao because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? It's also, you are badly planao because mistaken and error are the exact same word. To be mistaken means to be off track. It, it, it literally means to be off course. The idea of being mistaken is to get your life a degree off from the perfectly plumb cornerstone and then eventually not know how far off course you've actually gone. To be an error like these Sadducees, to be mistaken like these Sadducees, is not to believe the word and not to believe in the one who gave it. Paul came and proclaimed to us in Acts chapter 20, he says, I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And that gets stressful for us, especially when we're talking about what it means to follow this word. Pastor Nick, if I'm going to follow that word, that's a, that's a whole lot to memorize. You're talking about like 66 books and thousands of pages and well over 600 commands and a whole lot of stories. Like how in the world am I going to follow all of that? And I love this statement. It comes out of a, you know, not Vance Havner, long gone, but Reggie Joyner, who's still actively doing ministry and is a mentor and teacher. And a lot of us like to read the words. He says this, all scripture is equally inspired. I can get behind that. But not all scripture is equally important. Now don't get mad at me and don't get mad at Reggie. Because Jesus said the same thing. And it's in Mark chapter 12. Because you got the Pharisees and the Herodians that are coming to try to trap Jesus. And then you get the Sadducees who are coming to try to trap Jesus. And now another teacher of the law who is probably a Pharisee 
came and he heard them debating, which means he had heard the story that the Sadducees presented about the woman who had seven, oh, seven brothers, that's a crazy one. And he heard the whole question about, hey, should we pay our taxes? Should we not pay our taxes? And he heard the whole story about the really mean and evil tenant farmers. And so this teacher of the law, he came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He's got a pretty high approval rating at this point. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? How are you going to sum it up for us, Jesus? <coughs> How are you going to take all 39 books of the Old Testament that they had at this point? How are you going to take all of those 600 plus commands and the things that we as Pharisees over a 400 year period have added to it to help us know it and understand it and follow it? Which of those things is the most important? Jesus answered, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. He's literally quoting for them Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, the most important confession of faith for the Jew. God is one. Love him with everything that you have. And then he gives them a bonus. It's like extra credit. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus said, yeah, all scripture is equally inspired, but not all scripture is equally important. You want to know what the most important thing is? I'll tell you. You want to know how to keep your life really plumb? Make sure you know that all of this is really, really good, but the most important thing, the one that you can't get off track with, the one that you can't be in error with, is love. This idea of love. And so the guy responds, well said, teacher. Golf clap. Well said, the man replied. Like, I need you to know, Jesus, you did a really good job. You have my approval. You don't need it, but you have it. You are right, he said, in saying that God is one and that there is no other but him. You are right in saying, Jesus, that to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. This guy's literally telling Jesus, you're right, good job. And I want to say that criticizing Jesus, critiquing these words, and affirming Jesus, and upholding these words might just be two sides of the exact same coin because I've put myself in a position of authority. You did a really good job over here, Jesus. I'm proud of you. Now over here, your words could have used a little bit of work. You might have want to try a different approach, like putting himself in a position of authority rather than willingly submitting to who Jesus is and what he said. Both this criticism and this approval put us in a position of authority over Jesus, and that is a position that you and I are never, ever meant to be and we will never, ever be able to maintain. If you go to the context and you go to the answer, the idea of us knowing that love is the supreme value, that's how we change the empire. That's how we change the, the world around us. We change the empire with love, not with authority. It's not about us winning. It's not about us one-upping. It's not about us coming in first or being in control and being able to navigate any one of the landscapes in our life, whether that's education, whether that's politics, whether that's relationships, whatever that is. It's not about us winning and being first. It's about us being the most loving. And Jesus, who had ultimate authority, 
laid that all down in order to demonstrate God's love for us and the way that we should love others through him. Andy Stanley, he's also living. He says this, he writes, Jesus staged a demonstration of love that took everybody's breath away, including his own. Jesus put his life where his mouth was. He loved us to the point of dying for us, and we are called to do the exact same way. If we're going to live a plum life with Jesus, it's always going to be about sacrificial love. If we are going to understand the fullness of God's counsel and the will that he has for us in life, it's a will that we need. We need his will, and what that means is we need his worldview. We need this wisdom, and we need to worship every single part of it. Jesus had given them a good answer. What's the most important? To live your life according to Jesus. And the way that we do that is love. Worldview is it's understanding the way things work. It's understanding the systems that literally define everything. Relationships, economics, politics, work, science, all of the things come together in a worldview that is established largely before the time that you and I exit the fifth grade. So much of our ministry in life is not just this offense of making sure that we instill a biblical worldview into people because these are people whose worldview has already been long formed by so many other things. It's a position of defense to go in and break some of those things down so that we can build other things up in their place. We need a firmly biblical worldview and it has to include the idea of wisdom. It's the choices that we make. It's the ethics that we live by. It's the moralities that we in endorse, but ultimately, more than anything else, it's a position and a posture of worship that says, God, you are in charge. You are how I'm saved. It's your authority, not my own, on which I stand. And the only right response to you is 100% love God with everything that I have and love other people as a result. It's our cornerstone Everything about us, what we say, what we do, what we, everything has to line up with Jesus. That's where our level, that's where our plumbness comes. And then Jesus said with earshot, we've already had the Pharisees, we've already had the Herodians, we've already had the teachers of the law, we've already had the Sadducees, we've literally got the scribes. All of the audiences that are against Jesus are listening to Jesus. And in this moment, in verse 38, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law, y'all. People are hearing him say that, watch out for them, and this is why. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. He's all these people that are coming and asking me all these questions. Y'all watch out. Watch out, because you're going to veer off course. And we're waking one day and you're going to be like them. Like, watch out. These are the people that you want to watch out for. Last chapter, Mark 11, if you were here with us tracking last week, Jason Hale from our Nolansville campus was bringing the word. There's a story in Mark 11 about a fig tree. And, and what you, we don't understand about a fig tree is that literally there should have been figs on that tree 12 months out of the year because they produce two times. So at some point, every month out of the year, the figs are in process of growing and maturing. And so they see this fig tree in the distance in verse 13 of chapter 11 in leaf. There are leaves, mature leaves on the tree, and he went to find out if it had any fruit, not just any fruit, but ripe fruit that they could pick, and when he reached it, he found nothing, not even 
unripened figs, not not soon to be ripened figs, not if you come back tomorrow and this plant has been watered and got some sunlight figs, but literally no figs. Literally no figs. He's walking up to a tree that should have been producing fruit and it had nothing. And so in the story, he curses the fig tree and the next day the disciples are blown away because the whole thing was literally withered. There has to be fruit, not just leaves, not just lengthy prayers, not just prominent seats, not just flowing robes, not just respect in the marketplace. You can have a whole lot of leaves, but literally have no fruit. And so Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. Here he is. He's like, okay, people about to give their offerings. And he watched the crowd putting in their money into the temple treasury. And it says in verse 41 that many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Y'all, timing is everything. Did he literally not just say, watch out for all the showy, leafy people because this is how dangerous they are. They devour. He literally just said, those people devour widows' houses and here comes a widow to put in a couple of coins. And I don't know if she's the widow that was married to seven brothers because, whoa, that was a crazy story. But here she is, some widow in her moment of poverty called his disciples to him in verse 43. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more to the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This whole story today, which is all about submission, it's all about authority. There's a, probably a most important word in this whole verse. It's the idea of all. In all things she sacrificed. It would seem to me that in all things she submitted. And both of those were a picture of trust. You can't give Christ really anything of value until you trust him with everything that you have. Submission to authority certainly means trust, but it often means sacrifice. The the measure of sacrifice in your life will be the measure of trust that you have in Jesus. Submission literally means to sacrifice. It doesn't mean that sacrifice comes easily But in Christ, it will begin to come more naturally. Giving, as we do at the conclusion of our services, is is often described as an act of obedience, and it is. It's often defined as an act of generosity, and it certainly is. But more than any of that, it's a picture of trust. Okay, Jesus, you're you're the cornerstone. I'm going to I'm going to submit to your will and your way and your authority, and I'm going to line my whole life up with you. And that means everything that I do, everything that I have, everything that I believe ought to be turned over to you. Remember, here's the image. Here's the inscription. Turned over to you as an illustration of trust. How much do I really believe that you are what this word says that you are, 
that you did what this word says you did and that it means for me what this word says it means. It's not my authority, Jesus. It's yours. And I want to live my life according to it. Not because I'm afraid of you. Not even because I'm amazed by you. But because at the end of the day, no matter what, I trust you. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be in this place and to to tell you so freely that we, we desire to know what it means to trust you, Jesus. That we want to know what it means to give you our all. We want to know what it means to trust you with all. We want to know what it means to follow you wherever you go with all that we have because you're good and you're right and we believe in you. My prayer today for all of us is that everything that we do and say and think and believe in life would be an illustration of trust and that when the rest of the world sees us, they'll see a picture of what it means to be loved by you and to live a life of trust in you. We love you, God. We tell you today thank you for who you are and what it means to be your child. Amen. Thank you for checking out our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this sermon, make sure to share it with loved ones and subscribe so you can tune in each time we release a new sermon. Don't forget to check out our other awesome content, like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, go ahead and download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We'll see you next time.